Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male-dominated world. All of my guests have been handpicked from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer myself for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're like as real people, usually when the TV cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure and stress of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold her impressive reputation. How? Because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or maybe even intimidated by all the usual kinds of societal labels and trophies. The women of STEM on this show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've gathered from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of medicine. She's a surgical oncologist and founder of a tech company. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm so well. And I was just listening to that intro and thinking how freeing it is to be able to have a conversation for this reason, which is really just to share yeah. stories and experience so that we can possibly help other women navigate situations that you know we've been through ourselves. So I really am so grateful that you are doing this. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that kind of feedback because, you know, often I want to scream and shout from the rooftops, the kinds of guests like yourself that come on the show that are just so incredibly inspiring. Um, Because I think if people knew who I had on the show, um, I'd get like a massive flood of traffic. Um, But, you know, I have to rely on the strength of people's kind of word of mouth and honesty as to what we end up sharing, you know, and uh, I cannot wait to hear your story because I've known you for a while now and I've always been so incredibly inspired whenever I've been around you and I've been kind of watching your growth and evolution in all your projects and, you know, to actually hear how it all began is what I'm most excited about. So tell me, in terms of getting into medicine, was this something that you always dreamed of doing from an early age? Yeah, I was that kid that was always fascinated by the human body and uh, life cycles, reproduction. You know, I grew up on a farm and seeing the uh, insemination because my, my family was involved in uh, in vitro fertilization, actually, of cattle in you know years before this became more standard practice, and uh, so I, I was always fascinated by watching the cycle of life and trying to understand how these things work. So biology was my favorite subject. At the same time, I also 
loved books and narratives and storytelling. And so, you know, as I kind of pursued the sciences, I um, really looked at it as a way to tell stories about our lives um, uh, and how we exist in the world. So that was that was my drive. I, when I ended up in college and had to choose a major, um, I actually took it as an opportunity to, of course, complete all the pre-med requirements, but also to look at literature because for me, the it was the mind-body connection that always fascinated me most. And in fact, I was sure that I was going to be a, um, a, a pediatric uh, endocrinologist um, focusing on psychoneuroendocrinology. This is kind of my, <laughs> my oh thing my that gosh. fascinated me. Is how, how <laughs> That's a lot of words that I don't actually know the meaning of. <laughs> Well, how the brain and our hormones affect everything about the way we think, feel, and exist in the world. It turned out that when I rotated through my surgery rotation as a medical student, I was absolutely captured by the process of surgery, by the tools, by the idea of, you know, here's a problem. This is, you know, like a puzzle, how you can figure out how to solve this problem. And, um, so once I once I'd done surgery, I was like, oh, this is what I need to focus on. And then cancer, of course, um, because it was the ultimate challenge for me. So that was that was mm. really kind of what drove me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I started moving through the process of the training, I was really um, struck by some of the things that disappointed me. And, you know, I, I want this to be an inspiring conversation because I think that, you know, there's nothing more fascinating or exciting than what's happening in science and technology. And I think it's a wonderful um, intellectual pursuit and career path, but there are certainly challenges for women and for, I'll just say it, for sensitive people. Um so, you know, moving through the training, I really got to see the way that medicine, you know, has been created as a system uh, traditionally by, by men and to be practiced by men. And, you know, as more and more women find their way into medical school classes, so now it's just surpassed 50% actually female, at least in the United States, um, you know, we're, we're really questioning and challenging the way things are taught. So I'll never forget, you know, first year anatomy lab dissecting a human body. And um, this is one of the more (laughs) shocking things that I experienced, but uh, came time for the final exam. And there was a, this is pretty graphic, Chinny, but I'm just going to say it. There was Mm. a a quartered human pelvis. So, um, you know, cut off at the abdomen and at the top of both thighs, uh, legs spread with an arrow pointing to the clitoris. And the card said, what is the structure? And um, I I was pretty shocked by that. You know, Mm. it was 
it was the brutality. It was also the the obviousness of it. So the idea that you know some professor was kind of making a sexualized joke about a quartered female pelvis. Um, and of course, all the students burst out laughing when they got to that station. Um, but it was That's really so awful. It was awful. It was, it was traumatic, you know, mm. um, because of so many things, you know, the, the, vulnerability of the female pelvis you know kind of uh, was it just you that felt very sensitive to that or did you um you know confide in other women were they also offended by that there was one other woman in my med school class who I I confided in and she felt the same way um Mm. we actually went to the professor uh, this had been earlier. This was before the final exam, actually, to talk about some of the just the callousness that we felt was being uh, transmitted and the way that we were taught to approach the human body, really questioning it and um, and challenging it. And, you know, we were received with you know, respect and openness. And I, I, I didn't feel like I was being laughed at directly, but I definitely felt other. You know, I definitely felt like my reaction was not the normal reaction that most people had um, to that. To get an idea, um, how many other girls were there in that class? So it, I don't know the exact split of the demographic. I think it was slightly male dominant um, at that time. So there were enough women in there to have just, you know, branded that as being completely inappropriate? I would think so, yeah. But perhaps they didn't feel as comfortable. I mean, I, so I'm the one who, you know, ran the women's issues club in high school. You know, like I went to a women's college. I, you know, feminist uh, activist from an early age. So Mm. I was, I think, particularly sensitive and primed to be on the lookout for (laughs) things like this, I have to say. Yeah. At the same time, um, it was shocking to me uh, that there wasn't more of an uproar as Mm. we were, you know, experiencing these kinds of things. I think the most traumatic thing about my experience in mechanical engineering with events as traumatic as those was actually not being able to be heard and not finding my voice to communicate how distressing things like that was and so I think at the time if I had been able to speak out and say that was distressing then maybe I could have let it go but the fact that I wasn't I didn't have a voice at that time meant that it I carried it all throughout my life Right. And it sounds like that's what maybe the other girls in your class may have suffered from, because, I mean, that is distressing. It doesn't matter who you are. It's just so, it's so disgusting. I agree. And, you know, and I have witnessed many episodes and and things like that, that I haven't necessarily spoken out about. And I, I do to this day still carry those things. Um, with me and feel regret that I wasn't more outspoken. It's it's really a fascinating psychological kind of study mm. in 
Um, Why weren't you more outspoken? What stopped yeah, you? Well, because of the, I think, the inner, what do they call it, fraud complex that so many women suffer right. from. You know, imposter syndrome. Doubting, right, imposter syndrome. There we go. Imposter syndrome where there's there's this self-doubt, you know, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Do I belong here? Am I going to be found out? You know, mm. and uh, you always want right. to give other impression that, you know, you're cool, you're good with it, you you know, this is nothing, and you you don't want to be singled out as the person who has the problem. You obviously you're getting, you know, uh, rated. You're getting graded. You're getting yeah. Um, you're being judged and criticized yeah. essentially from these people that you are witnessing engaging in these questionable things. So, and you know that the power that they have to shape your entire career is, um, it's real. So it's a form of suppression, isn't it? It is. And, you know, blatantly, like in, in today's language, I think we would be very clear, like that was actually sexual harassment of all the female students in that anatomy lab on that day, uh, mm. institutionalized sexual harassment, I, I yeah. believe, you know, um, because, you know, it wasn't like we were identifying, you know, the fifth branch of the nerve coming off of this obscure, you know, we were, it was very obvious. It was meant to be a joke. Mm. And um, I think it probably wouldn't, I, I don't know if it would happen today. I, I can't put it past you. I wonder though, with today's awareness and sensibilities, if that would have mm. happened. I mean, I honestly thought I had it bad, but that really makes my skin crawl the idea of what you went through. And that's probably just one of many examples, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we are starting to see, I think, post-Me Me Too movement. Well, Me Too is in progress. And, you know, I feel like this show, in a way, is contributing to that because these are the Me Too stories for women in STEM, right, mm. that you're telling and being a part of bringing out into, of bringing a voice to. But... Um, just this week, uh, I saw a bill had been introduced in uh, Colorado that was going to make uh, exams, pelvic exams of women under anesthesia without their consent, finally make that illegal. And so this is another thing that I feel e an enormous amount of discomfort with in terms of even my own complicity and participating and witnessing uh, this horrendous thing, which is how medical students are taught to perform pelvic exams on women um, when they're under anesthesia. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard that this happens, but essentially at all major teaching institutions where medical students are present, you know, if a woman has consented for a surgery and it involves something to do with the lower half of her body, or, you know, she's in uh, on a OR table with her legs in stirrups, you know, very frequently, um, medical students, and there could be four, there could be five, there could be more, and residents, you know, are um, instructed to perform a pelvic exam on her while she's unconscious 
uh, purely for their own uh, learning purposes. And this is not something that I believe most women would be thrilled about at all to mm. know how to turn on. And it's not discussed generally with them before they sign their surgical consent. And, um, you know, I believe that we need to be sharing these stories so that all women know they have to specifically say to their surgeon, you know, this is not okay with me. I do not want this to happen. And, you know, I trust that you will not let it happen when I'm, you know, under anesthesia. Right. Yeah. But I mean, imagine what it, what it felt like to be like a feminist woman, you know, in training uh, on her surgical rotation, hoping to get that top grade so you can progress in your career and being right. like expressly directed, do this, feeling uncomfortable about it. Mm, yeah. And doing it anyway. I mean, that's uh, that's an enormous burden that I think I have carried. And I think you know, trying to spread the word about this is in a way my almost living amends for that. How and when did you find your voice on this subject? Well, interestingly, I think that it's when I shifted out of the world of, uh, you know, academic medical practice. Right. Um, so you essentially or... have nothing to lose. By yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because I notice with interviews that I had done, you know, while I was in practice and still seeking the approval of, you know, my uh, elders, my mentors, my my bosses, my superiors, I would censor myself and I would, you know, hold a belief maybe in my mind, but I wouldn't necessarily share that belief. But there was you know, essentially so many of these um, experiences accumulated over the time that I was in inactive practice and I've, sh I've shifted out. So now I'm writing, I have this tech company, I had a journey through an international medical nonprofit, which I co-founded and, and scaled, you know, globally. So I, I have had an alternative, I would say, career path. Mm, yeah. It wasn't until I had put a little bit of distance behind me that I realized how much of my true beliefs and feelings I had been, you know, editing, yeah. uh, curating, suppressing uh, out of a, really what was fear, fear of, of being rejected, fear of not, um, fear of ridicule, you know, because there's a lot of that as well. There's this groupthink mentality. And when people start expressing thoughts and feelings that are outside of that, um, they become targets. And mm. at that time in my life, I didn't possess, you know, really, I don't know what it is, the courage yeah. <laughs> to uh, just unapologetically, you know, state my views. And that's something I would say. When you say at that time of my life, I mean, what was going on for you at that time that you felt you couldn't leave? Oh, well, I was, you know, as I think many of us are in this field, particularly as women, because we've had to plow through even more challenges than our male colleagues to get where we are, um, I was extremely driven. And so, you know, I had 
big dreams and goals and I was going to do everything in my power to pursue those and move forward, even if it was sacrificing not only my own kind of um, principles, but also my health. And so, you know, now we're, we're getting into the part of the story. I mean, we've missed so many, I could tell you so many episodes where, you know, in training, just overt, overt comments. Can I use a bad word on this podcast? You can beep it out if you want to, but I'll never forget the, I was in residency on a surgery rotation and um, my male uh, head of the department of surgery, I was operating with him and he, so he was in charge of the entire rotation, my grade, you know, my entire future, really, because you can't go into a surgical residency if you haven't aced your surgery rotation as a medical student. And he was talking about what a Hillary Clinton was right beside me, you know. So I was, tr- I was thinking about that um, episode and experience, you know, as we're operating, da, 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 he's, you know, and he is completely um, in such a misogynistic, you know, derogatory way, talking about, you know, a, a woman in power and in the public eye and using a blatantly misogynistic term to describe mm. her. And I was thinking, can you imagine if, say, I was African-American operating with a, a white male doctor and he was referring to a prominent African-American person and called them the N-word. Like that's essentially the equivalent, really. Mm. Um, And you just had to just keep going and not react. And well, or maybe I didn't, maybe I should have, maybe I should have put down the instruments and walked out of that room and told the Dean of my medical student school to, you know, void my entire rotation that I would repeat it because I refused to be graded and evaluated by a misogynist. But then Um, you're being held back by somebody else's limitations. Absolutely. So I just held it in and proceeded and, you know, got the top marks on that rotation and good for you. You know, well I don't know I but, don't know good for me <laughs> well I mean even though it's a horrible experience to go through that must have taught you so much about how to carry yourself in the world because you know the the terrible truth is there are people like that that do exist that you know just have entirely different perspectives on life to you um, and it's how we deal with that that is probably of most benefit to us. Yes, possibly. And at that time, you know, how I dealt with it was by self-containment and just plowing through. And now how I'm dealing with it, which I, I think is also to my benefit and growth, is by sharing it. Um, so, you know, as I progressed, I, I had... Uh, an interesting journey where I actually at the end of fellowship decided to enroll in a PhD program because I hadn't had enough school. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Oh, there's a wonderful book that I want to tell your listeners about. It's called the elephant in the laboratory. I forget who wrote it, but have you encountered that book? Shiniji? No, I've never heard of that. It's wonderful. It is the elephant in the laboratory, and it's about 
sexism and um, mom shaming and essentially the female experience in science and technology in the lab. Oh, wow. And I, Brilliant. Yeah. And, and what happens when you, you know, try to be a mother and a scientist and, you know, different women kind of, it's broken into chapters of different women telling their stories. It sounds like a book you could have written. Well, I'm living it, right? So yes. <laughs> it was very, it was very, uh, very deep, very personal, very honest, raw and accurate, right? So um, when I, I moved into uh, the, the PhD program, you know, I really, it, it was also the year that I had my first child. And here I was working at the research center at an academic medical center. And I had to uh, pump breast milk in a bathroom stall, you know, in a dirty bathroom stall, not even a private bathroom, because there was no place for me as a female scientist who was, you know, lactating to uh, comfortably express breast milk, you know, and feeling guilty every time I had to, you know, ask to step away so that I could take care of that. This is is shocking in the medical field. You would think, right? And at a hospital, by the way. So I, I did find out that there was a lactation room, you know, over in the main building, which would have been, you know, maybe a 10 or 15 minute walk to get to that room to sit down, you know, it it just, it it wasn't um, doable for me. And so this was my experience, you know, during that year. And if I, and we would go to a conference for the day, there wouldn't be a, a place to go. I would be in physical pain. I would develop mastitis. I would develop a clogged milk duct. You know, I think most women who are in um, challenging careers and, and also trying to breastfeed and pump at the same time can relate to this experience. But you would think that being in my field of medicine or even of science, right? Yeah, we really you have some that, kind of understanding. Yeah, to human health, how essential, you know, like breast milk is to, to baby's health and development, that there might be a little bit more, you know, leeway here, but there was absolutely was not. And um, in fact, you know, you, you are viewed as, oh, you know, the person who needs the extra time to do this or, you know, just like uh, what happens when you have to you know, leave an experiment in order to get back home to relieve your nanny. You know, I mean, it's the world is really not uh, set up, at least America, you know, um, to be supportive of women in the workplace at all with children. Um, But I think especially women in science. And that's not just women in the STEM workplace, right? Right, right. Well, you know, we also have, yes, these these bizarre kind of public um, stigma against breastfeeding in public for all women, you know, and we, we really need have a long way to go to normalize and destigmatize just motherhood in, in society, which sounds absurd, but it's true. I, um, I mean, so, you know, that was... That was Go ahead. What were you doing it all for? Because it really sounds like it was a slog. 
um, <laughs> you know, what yeah. was driving you to keep going? Well, so I really loved uh, my patients. I loved um, being able to uh, accompany them through the most challenging times in their lives. You know, I loved um, being a source of comfort to them and uh, helping to allay their fears. You know, I, I loved having the technical skill to, you know, competently remove cancer from their bodies. Like there was, there was so much that was as a surgeon in the, the PhD program, which I'll say flatly because of motherhood and because of sexual harassment in the workplace, I actually, the only thing in my life I've ever stepped away from once I've started, I had to step away from the PhD program, but I was fascinated by the, um, the pathophysiology and the, the cell biology of, um, of cancer. And I was working on a very exciting project that I feel could have really helped illuminate the origins of ovarian cancer. So, um, you know, I, I was really driven by that. I was like, what if, you know, we could discover something that changed everything about you know, women's experience. And so that, that was part of my drive. So I, I just stuck with it. Um, also, I have to say, after so many years of the bottling things up, the plowing through, the having the goal and the almost like um, blinders on, you know, just charging towards that goal, it is difficult to step away and it's your your entire identity becomes wrapped up in that pursuit and then you start thinking who am i if i'm not you know a practicing successful academic surgical oncologist or you know scientist um who am i you know and especially if you've compromised i think some of your core belief systems on the way there then you really wonder who am i you know so does that answer? <laughs> I mean, it's a complicated question. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see the satisfaction in your work for sure. You know, in, in terms of meeting your sort of like your needs for compassion and empathy and, and doing good in the world, I can really understand why you were drawn to a career like that. But I'm picturing it as a weighing scale and seeing the kinds of harassment you went through is just deeply distressing. I, I didn't think that medicine would be that bad, purely because you kind of picture anyone studying medicine as generally having a high regard for human for humanity. Yeah, well, you know, but it has been, this is all relatively recent, right, that women have been such a force in the medical field. Um, women, you know, were excluded from medicine for centuries, you know, I mean, especially once you had really midwives, you know, who used to uh, take care of women in childbirth, then you had them really 
forced out of practice as it was taken over by a very male-dominated field. And now is really the first time we're having women return to that role. Um, why, why don't men want women in the field? I mean, you know, one of the strengths of um, diverse teams is the fact that, you know, different perspectives are brought to the table. Why, why are women not welcome in the medical field? Well, I, I think the answer to that is, was purely economic, right? So here was a lucrative profession with some power and prestige attached to it. And men were like, I'll claim that. <laughs> I'll take that. You know, right. as at least in America, as reimbursement rates for medical services have declined sometimes by double digits every year uh, from insurance companies, and medicine has gotten increasingly um, stressful and with decreasing financial returns and rewards, you've seen a very steep drop off in men choosing medicine as a field. So, you know, <laughs> much like teaching, you know, uh, teaching used to be male dominated. Now they can't, you know, they have a hard time attracting male candidates to teaching school. So, you know, it's um, unfortunately as uh, salaries and financial rewards decrease in any profession, we, we tend to see an increase in the proportion of female candidates. Right. So I, I think it's, I think it's about money, honestly. Mm. Um, yeah, I must but, say, um, the picture you're painting isn't particularly attractive for medicine. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> like, I, I just, I never ever thought it was like this. It must. I wonder if it's just very uh, America specific, or whether medicine is like this all around the world. I mean, gosh, I really hope not. I don't know. I mean, I, I have done quite a bit of international work, you know, and and met. Uh, doctors and, and lectured and you know around the world and um, I think that there is a unique crisis in the healthcare system in America that is influencing this but I I do see these trends um, you know in in some way globally and but part of that has been the rise of the the tech industry and you know startups and the finance uh, industry and you know I think that men um, are seeking you know, higher paying professions everywhere, not just in America, um, and and not and moving away from medicine. One thing I do want to say that you know, I, maybe this is me as a woman, you know, feeling like I I'm responsible for taking care of everything and everyone, including the profession of medicine. You know, there was some feeling of uh, almost guilt or responsibility, like if. If the sensitive ones all leave, then what will people be left with, you know, as their providers, as their healthcare providers? So, and I, in a way, I carry that to this day. You know, I'll bump into people who will say to me, oh, you know, we were all so devastated when you, when you closed your surgical practice because now we don't have, you know, fill in the blank person to, to, safely feel like we could send our patients there. And um, that was a very difficult decision for me because I was like, okay, do I continue to sacrifice my health, my, mm. you know. Yourself, essentially. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and, you know, I know that this was written from a good place, but, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's lean in when I read that, I was just like, 
oh, you know, so <laughs> she's telling me, stick with it, you know, stay at the, t- you know, don't leave, don't, you know, as uncomfortable as it is, just stay there and, and fight it through. And, you know, at that moment in my life, that was not going to be the healthy thing for me to do. Um, you know, so as a practicing surgeon, again, an- another, another episode that, you know, haunts me to this day for what I didn't say, right? So we were at this, uh, it's called Tumor Board, where you have a multidisciplinary group of doctors um, in a room. You have radiologists, pathologists, surgical oncologists, you know, you have the um, head nurses, you have, you know, discussing different uh, cancer cases. And I I made a statement about um, a certain surgical approach as, you know, being the gold standard. And I'll never forget this older male surgeon stands up, walks over to me, puts his head, his hand on the top of my head and pats my head and says, you're not teaching us anything, honey. You know, <laughs> and I was just like, wow. oh my God, you know tantalized and condescended to mansplain. But he did that in front of everyone, right? Everybody. So so what did people think? I don't know what other people thought. You know, nobody, certainly nobody came up to me and said anything. Um, It's probably that fear of speaking up again. Oh, yeah. And he was the, you know, he was the alpha surgeon in the room, right? So no one's really going to challenge that. Um, because then they could become a target too. So it, it really was just a system of, uh, I don't know, sexism, let's just call it what it is, you know, that, that you just lived with and expected. I feel like everything I've heard um, has been both shocking, but also admirable, because I feel like you have grown and evolved into an extremely tenacious woman. Would you agree? I think I'm certainly more grounded, uh, stronger, with a, a deeper sense of kind of conviction that I have a, a unique voice that is worth contributing to the conversation. So yes, I feel healthier and stronger than I ever had in my life. And I do feel like what I've been through has helped build me into the, you know, woman I am today and is going to inform every career decision, every move and everything I do in the future for the better. So I am grateful for all of these experiences as difficult and painful as they may have been along the way. And, you know, for every bad story I'm telling you there, I don't want to give the wrong impression because there were so many wonderful interactions, you know, uh, women that really, you know, express such incredible uh, gratitude or joy or, you know, for me being a part of their, of their cancer journey. And, you know, um, I, I don't know, there's so many rewarding aspects as well. So there is a balance. It was not one-sided, on the whole, I made a decision not to continue, mm. you know, practicing as a surgical oncologist, but, you know, I, I feel like 
um, it could very well be a wonderful career path for many women. And also that things have changed somewhat, I think, for the better. I mean, I'll never forget. So back to breast milk pumping, because I have three children. So, Amazing. you know, that pumping in the bathroom stall was one thing. The the covering multiple hospitals and, and driving between them, you know, leaving the house at 4 a.m., you know, like I pumping while on the freeway on the way <laughs> to, you know, like these kinds of things <laughs> just were incredibly technically challenging. Um, because I do think also as mothers that um, besides breastfeeding, you know, we take on an enormous amount of the emotional labor and the responsibility for organizing and coordinating every detail of our children's lives, their health, their well-being, their schedules, everything. Yeah. So um, that is that is a freedom that um, I think many men have when they pursue their careers that women don't give themselves. You know, I saw this amazing cartoon the other day and it was imagine a runners at a track and they're all at a starting line and you see, you know, the track and you see men kind of um, just with the, the open empty track in front of them and in front of the women you see like laundry machines and <laughs> massive dishes and they're in high heels and like <laughs> they're all lined up at the starting line and you're just going hmm yeah who has wonder. the advantage I wonder yeah yeah who has the yeah. But, you know, when I think about you um, and then relating back to Sheryl Sandberg's leaning in, I feel like everything that you have um, developed along the way in terms of your character allows you to lean in to your latest venture, which is this tech company. I mean, surely you must really have gathered some strength to be able to start a tech company all by yourself. Oh, well, I think, yes, it was bold and um, something that is completely outside of my um, training. You know, I, I did not um, I did not study software or hardware, you know, engineering. Um, so I'm not I, I need I need your skill set. Uh, but I um, I do think that the the work ethic the uh tenacity as you said is is definitely something so i have learned to just keep going you know just continue and, and also the that, assertiveness it yeah, sounds like you yeah. would definitely speak up today whereas in the past you would have been yeah. too scared that's true. I mean, sometimes my reaction is um, it's not in the moment as I would hope that it would be, <laughs> you know, it, something will, will strike, rub me as wrong. And then I'll kind of sit with it for a day or so. And then I'll be like, oh, that's what that was. You know, for instance, uh, um, I was mom shamed essentially over a period of months by a male co-founder and um, who, you know, was speaking to me in, in terms that I was like, this just feels really uncomfortable. But then I had a I had an epiphany after one particular conversation. And uh, actually, my daughter was in the room and and the phone was on speakerphone. And, and after we hung up, my daughter said, 
mom, you know, he was, he was really being rude to you. I was like, wow. You know, because I knew it was, it was an uncomfortable conversation, but she named it, Mm. you know, she called it out. I had been making excuses because I felt like, oh, I'm not as knowledgeable on this subject. Yeah. I need to learn this. I'd been kind of- We make excuses. Yes. Yes. And, but when she just called it out and she, you know, children, they hear tone and they hear energy Mm. even more so than specific words. And when she called it out, I was like, oh my God, you know, in my mind, that's exactly what that was. And, you know, when he was telling me things like, uh, you need to be immediately reachable at all times by text and email, And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a mom. I'm not going to walk through my life, you know, with my phone out staring at the screen, waiting for texts and emails to come in so I can immediately respond. I said, you know, no, finally, right? Finally, I said, no, you know, I'm a a mother and a, a surgeon. I've been on call essentially my entire adult life. If there's an urgent matter, you can call me. And he said, well, that's just not the way business is done. And you know, I was like, well, that's the way I'm going to be doing business. And, you yeah. know, being able to to counter that directly, yeah. really, without shame or embarrassment. Um, In a split second, having to decide if you can say this or not. Yeah. Should I keep my mouth shut? Right. Is this appropriate? Um, I need to speak up for myself. Like all those thoughts running through your head. Yeah. Yeah. So, and ultimately, and this was in fact the most terrifying thing I ever had to do. I, I, I confronted him and said, you know, I just don't think that this is the right partnership moving forward. And I, I bought him out and I negotiated, you know, uh, strongly on my own behalf um, so that I would have the equity needed in a cap table to build a successful business without him. Because I knew that I did not want that energy um, in my company. That so takes that so was- much courage to really stand up for what you believe something should be rather than trying to fit in and follow a groove that's already been made, essentially you know, doing something new um, and believing in it. Yes. And because it was something that was so new to me, I th- I feel like it took an extra act of courage on my own behalf to believe in myself enough. Exactly. Yeah, we're having to mostly fight our own self-doubt. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So tell me something. Do you think, I mean, when I when I listen to you, describe your daughter's reaction to the voice on the speakerphone and your reaction to the voice on the speakerphone I'm wondering what is it that changed you from the attitude your daughter has to the attitude you had what made you lose the ability to detect being treated inappropriately um Hmm. This is really personal, <laughs> but I think that this comes back to uh, early childhood parenting messages. You know, um, my 
my mother was, you know, she's an example of a professional woman with a master's degree who sacrificed her career entirely to move to a different country to uh, marry my father and have children um, in a very isolated area where she had no support system, no intellectual stimulation whatsoever. So she kind of had to rationalize her own, here I am psychoanalyzing my mother, but she had to rationalize her own career decisions and uh, find meaning in her own life. And, you know, she uh, definitely messaged to me from a young age um, that my main responsibility in life was to uh, take care of the feelings and bodies of other people um, and to put my own thoughts and feelings aside uh, in order to do that. So um, mm. I, I received that message in numerous ways continuously from a very young age. And so essentially um, abandoning yourself was the way to yes. function. Yes. Abandon yourself in your marriage, abandon yourself in your, your body's uh, desires, abandon yourself professionally, you know, like you, this is, this is what a woman's role really is. And the irony of it is that my mother, I believe to this day would consider herself a feminist, but you know, she had so absorbed and we're dealing with multi-generational uh, brainwashing, right. Absolutely. And, yeah. and trauma and trauma. And so I hope that I am stopping that cycle. Um, I also recognize that there are things that I continue to do, uh, probably in front of my children that they're, they're absorbing messages as well. You know, every time, you know, um, I'll just call him out every time my husband like gets up from the dinner table and walks and sits down in front of the TV without clearing a single dish. And, you know, <laughs> my kids are watching me, uh, put the food away Take and over. clear the dish. Even, yeah. Yeah. Even though I have also prepared the meal, you know, so, um, so that, that happens and that continues, but. And what do you do, do to correct that? Do you do something? Well, it, it yeah, yeah. No, I'll say, I'll say, um, honey, would you, would you help me clear the table? And he'll say, um, I'm really tired. I've been going all day. And, you know, here's my victory. My nine-year-old son just the other night said, mom's been going all day too. <laughs> he spoke up for me. Wow. He, and he's you know, male. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, okay, you know, my kids are seeing this. They're hearing that, you know, but also am I going to am I going to have a fit over it or am I going to just, you know, take care of what needs to be taken care of and, and have a private conversation with my husband mm. later, you know, and that's what happens. I mean, um, and you're trying, we'll see if you're, you're single-handedly changing generational stereotypes and traditions here. It's a massive I'm undertaking. You know? <laughs> yeah. But my girls, you know, that you're right. Like they are so, um, they are so strong. They are so empowered. They, you know, they hear 
statements being made, you know, by our president, they will call them out for, you know, being racist or sexist or whatever it is. Um, I also know that, and we see this in women in STEM, right, and girls in maths and sciences, uh, there's an age, I think it's around age 11, where girls who have had a lot of confidence in themselves and their abilities, we start seeing a fall off at a, um, in their pursuit of math and science. We, we start seeing them um, not having the same kind of confidence to put their hand up in a classroom. Yeah, around around and, about and, the age of around 10, actually, right. statistically. Uh, that's what my daughter is. Yeah, that's when my eldest daughter's ten right now. So yeah, is that happening you know, I'm to her? Really trying. No, no. So um, she's she is absolutely in love with math. Um, you know, I'm the other smiling day we right went now. Out, oh, yeah. <laughs> we went out to a restaurant, and you know how they give kids the little kids menu with crayons to color. So she flips the page over to the blank side takes the crayon and starts writing code. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and like coming up with these, with these numbers that equal letters if her code, you know, and she has this whole page that looks like, you know, a beautiful mind of symbols and code. <laughs> and she needs to explain to me the code that she's just created and written and why it works and how this, you know, this word really means that word. And, and and I was just like, that's incredible. You're so creative. You're so brilliant. You know, and I'm just uh, enforcing that. I was reading the other day, um, uh, MIT Technology Review, they had their like 120th anniversary uh, issue. And my daughter takes the uh, the magazine from me and she's looking at it and she's reading it and she finds an error in one of the pie graph charts what? in this MIT tech review, like published journal. And, you know, I just, I could not be prouder, more proud. And I um, want to encourage her mm. because I feel like math and science is uh, the future. It's a future um, professionally and it's an incredibly exciting, rewarding um, uh, field to be in. So, just for the benefit of the, those listeners who don't have an incredibly supportive and nurturing mother like yourself. I mean, if they're sitting there listening to your descriptions of your daughter saying, I, I love math as much as that, but no one's in my corner. You know, how do you have any advice for any young girls who are as interested and as passionate about STEM subjects, but just don't have anyone on their cheer team? Well, I am a huge believer in uh, mentorship. And so finding that teacher, that, you know, after school math club led by, you know, a strong woman in math or science, or even a man, you know, who believes in you and is going to support and encourage you in your pursuit, that is a game changer. Because they definitely do exist, don't they? Because I, I don't want my shows to kind of just be about um, claiming that men oh, don't support us. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they're less common, perhaps, but 
they definitely exist and there are men out there that really want to nurture us and it's not about gender it's just about nurturing interest and passion and talent yes absolutely so I think you know that for me a really good litmus test is how do I feel after a conversation with someone do I feel empowered uplifted excited motivated or do I feel self-doubt, diminished, demeaned, you know, and if I really check in with myself, it's pretty clear, you know, the people that are healthy influences that I want to, you know, spend time with and learn from and uh, be mentored by and people that are, you know, more toxic or unhelpful, we could just say. So it's finding those real champions and spending time with them. And then I also will just put in a plug for a single sex education for mm-hmm. girls. Um, you know, as my daughters move into their next school, which will be in a couple of years for their middle school, um, I'm looking at single sex education because of those critical years, you know, ages 10 through, you know, 17 or so where we have this steep fall off. I feel like if young girls can be supported and empowered to really pursue their, their interests um, without feeling embarrassed that, you know, the boys won't think that they're cool if they raise their hand in math class, you know, um, we, I might be able to get them through to the other Mm. side, maintain this really exciting. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I did a couple years at a all women's college in undergraduate. Um, I also went abroad, but, um, I think that it was enormously helpful. Yeah. And I have to say that with other episodes, Um, Other women in STEM have talked about single sex schools and how they basically grew up to believe that women can do all roles because they had to in single sex schools. And so, yeah, I must say, if I if I had to choose, um, I would be all for single sex, too. Um, I mean, such fantastic advice that you're giving about sort of like the people we spend time with um and how we really need to check in with ourselves as to the effect they have on us um when you talked about your mother I must say that I was having to bite my tongue because I so wanted to jump into that subject and really delve into it but that probably would have been more material for two or three or more episodes of silence but in terms of you growing up who was your inspiration who uplifted you through all the education that you went through it's a really interesting question and maybe it's telling that I have I really struggle to answer that question because I I don't know that I had a person to tell you the truth Mm. um I have not had, I have had different mentors periodically throughout my career, but none that have endured. And as I have grown and matured and come into my own voice and power, I've actually seen um, 
you know, patterns of behavior and things in my mentors that have been uh, deeply disappointing. And I've actually, I've also had the experience of um, being really hurt by one of my female mentors, uh, you know, where, and I, I wonder how much of this isn't the kind of behaviors and um, mindset that it takes to be extremely successful, you know, fighting your way through a very male-dominated, you know, field to the top. Um, I wonder if it hasn't changed, you know, just the way she acts towards other women. But um, one of my deepest betrayals, in fact, was from a female mentor and uh, where her ego was challenged and um, and she she did not have my back in the way that um, I would have hoped. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering so, how much of your drive was fueled on anger and resentment and just an absolute need to prove people wrong. Uh, I hope, you know, I recognize that a lot of my drive might have been fueled by that or or even like a deep insecurity or feeling of not enoughness that, you know, maybe if I got this achievement, that achievement, this award, you know, that praise, um, I would feel finally enough um, or good enough. So, yes, I've done all the therapy to look at exactly those issues. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> But you know what's so amazing is like, you know, regardless of what you think about your own um, trajectory, it, from where I'm standing, you are a woman that absolutely has it all. What's your view on that? Do you agree? Has it been hard? I mean, do you see yourself as as having it all? See, I... Uh, maybe I haven't done enough psychotherapy because I would still say, no, I don't have it all. I, I need this more. <laughs> I need to raise this round of funding. I need to, you know. Um, anyway, I, I think that I am embarking on a new chapter. I think I have a lot to learn. Um, I think that I am continuing to grow and expand. I have a lot more compassion for myself um, and patience also than I've ever had before. Um, because I used to believe that I needed to have it all right now. And now I see, okay, I am just coming out of uh, three children's early childhood. You know, my youngest is seven. So, you know, uh, just really moving into some more independence, although they need me every single day, all the mm. time still. Um, but I'm also much more empowered to set boundaries um, and essentially to demand um, active co-parenting with my husband. Um, so it's all a work in progress. And I think that um, life is a, a series of chapters where we have more intensive focus on different aspects of our life at different mm. times. I, I believe much like uh, Michelle Obama recently famously said, you know, that that lean in shit is bullshit. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. 
but I, she called it out. She actually, I think, did use the word bullshit. <laughs> um, but said, we all know that you can't have it all at the same time. Right. You know, and you subscribe um, to that too. I do. I do. And so at this moment, I am glad that as an entrepreneur, I have more flexible hours. I can, you know, send emails in the middle of the night or, you know, do follow-ups at at random times of day where, you know, from the car after I've just dropped kids off somewhere, you know. So I really appreciate that. I don't know that I would be the kind of cancer surgeon right now Mm -hmm. that would meet my own criteria for, you know, uh, excellence Mm -hmm. because I believe that, you know, patients with serious medical illnesses um, need and deserve to have, um, pretty complete focus, you know, uh, and, and that's not where I am right now. Maybe this is my perfectionism. Maybe this is a lack of a system that's supportive enough in other ways. Um, but I, I couldn't be the kind of cancer surgeon and mother right now at this moment that I want to be. And how much of, the tasks that you've been juggling have been supported by your husband? Uh, I mean, they're supported in, in different ways, right? So there's uh, financial support, um, which is important, right? So being able to have resources to uh, hire help, so that, you know, I can attend the tech conference in San Francisco next weekend, you mm. know, that is, that's a measure of support. Um, One of the reasons why I ask is because, you know, women like yourself are so well-rounded in terms of playing not just a f- conventionally female role, but also taking on quite a masculine role as well. And so I always, I'm always so curious to know what kind of men, women like you partner up with. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, we are actually, this is something you don't know, but we are uncoupling right now. So (laughs) maybe that is, um, that's part of the story here. I'm also finding my, my way, you know, in, um, demanding certain things from a partner um and it's it's okay and it's all good and it's it's loving and it's supportive but uh that's another chapter right of of the journey is taking this same grounded um sense of uh, self and bringing that into all aspects of my mm. life. So whether that's professionally or personally, you know, I, I know the kind of um, intimacy that I want and, and deserve and, uh, and that's okay. So that's to answer your question because it gets a little bit more complicated. Mm. Um, however, I will say that I have witnessed in um my husband, a definitely a growth and, and an, 
evolving awareness of feminism and of these issues that we're talking about today. Um, so we had, I call it my, uh, my bathroom moment um, <laughs> that doesn't involve pumping breast milk in a bathroom. <laughs> That's another, another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another bathroom moment I had, which I will never forget, was the day um, that I had a cancer surgery and he had a very important meeting and the kids had some unexpected, you know, but essential, and I forget what it was, thing that needed to be done for them. And we looked at each other and it was that moment of like, well, who's going to do it, you know? And he just said to me, well, right now, my career is more important than your career, you know? And yeah, yeah, it's cringeworthy, isn't it? And at that moment, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I was performing cancer surgery that morning, you know, so it was, uh, you, you couldn't argue that his, his career in terms of value added to human life or experience was more important, but it was paying the bills that were supporting our families, you know, life and well-being. Um, that was another moment that I had to metabolize over, you know, a series of years before I could be like, oh, you know, that was, um, that was deeply hurtful, mm. you know, and deeply unfair. And funny enough, you know, what helped me realize that I listened to Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, book on Audible. She read it, the the one after the election, What mm. Happened? And she talked about how while she was married to Bill and he was president of the United States, he never made her feel that his job was more important than hers. And that really moved me because I was like, oh, you know, like it's possible to have one of the most important, powerful jobs on the planet and not diminish your wife, you know? Well, some <laughs> um, might say he diminished her in other ways. So, In other ways, in other ways. But in that way, you know, she did feel mm. that he had always supported her professional endeavors, right? So, um mm. And that's interesting. Uh, it's so interesting because I think ultimately through all the experiences that you've described on this show, I feel like ultimately the only way to safeguard ourselves during those experiences is to take care of our needs and to ensure that we are giving ourselves what it is that we need to thrive. It's not going to be found in other people um, and in other jobs and in our kids, but it has to come from within somehow. Um, yeah. I agree. And I think that doing that deep personal work is so important because uh, other people in our lives ultimately I believe are just going to reflect back to us our innermost beliefs about ourselves mm. right so 
if I'm feeling not enough, you know, if I'm feeling um, like I, I don't have a voice, uh, I, I, I believe that that I'm, I'm going to find, you know, examples out in the world that are going to reinforce that. Um, and if, if I shift that inner b- belief system about myself, you know, when those critical messages or hideously inappropriate comments or things come at me, they're not going to penetrate, you know, they're going to roll off because I'll just recognize them as being untrue as opposed to before when they had that deeply wounding effect. If I'm being honest, it's because they, they pushed a button, they struck a nerve. They, they were like, Oh, is this true? You know? And now I can kind of laugh and be like, Nope, not true. <laughs> you know, So it's very freeing. Based on that, then, what would you advise girls who are thinking about taking STEM as a career path? Because I think some girls choose it out of fulfilling other people's expectations. But based on everything you've said, why then would you suggest to someone to follow a career in STEM? Well, I think that... STEM has it all, you know, STEM has amazing narratives and beautiful art and fascinating intellectual problems to solve. I mean, there's really anything you want, you can find in a a career in STEM and uh, infinite possibilities, right? And, uh, And flexibility. If you have these concrete skill sets, you can then have much more agency and autonomy in shaping your life the way you want to. Um, and, and that's my plug for kind of the hard sciences is once you've uh, reaped that knowledge, no one can take away, that away from you, right? So you have a quantifiable objective skill set that can continue to serve you throughout your life. Not as true in the softer sciences, right? Um, so I, I'm a big advocate for it. It's like uh, outfitting yourself for a, a journey, a long journey you have. You know, you want to take the tools with you that you know you know, can serve you well on that journey. And I I feel like um, background and training in in these hard sciences are excellent tools. Um, That can also, by the way, with like modern, you know, hiring practices and what big companies are looking for, give you the financial uh, independence to have more agency in your personal life as well. So that's that's a big plug. Um, And... I just feel that, uh, you know, we, we should run towards things that are, are challenging for us because that's, and, and even a little uncomfortable because that's where I believe growth happens. You know, that's where we come up against our, perhaps our own psychological kind of barriers that we've set and begin to poke holes in those barriers and really question core beliefs uh, that we hold about ourselves, what we're capable of, what we're not capable, you know, and really um, push through that. So 
I'm an advocate for things that are hard. Um, but at the same time, I believe in self-care and uh, getting a team together to support you when times get hard. So, you know, one of the, the most challenging things, I think, is feeling isolated when you're going through a difficult uh, situation. And so I would encourage, you know, go to that all-girls school. Have your circle of girls that are all approaching this really hard math class together. You know, work collaboratively. Um, have relationships with mentors that you can go to to talk about your feelings, process what you're going through, you know, reap their support. Um, but but don't shy away from the challenges. You know, march towards them, um, but with the help and support mm. that you need. Such a beautiful note to end on. I have goosebumps. You are a total inspiration. You're really living the suggestions and the mantras that you live by. And I thank you so much for coming on this show. Oh, thank you, Shani. It was a absolute pleasure and thank you for bringing these voices um, to share with other women because we are not alone and when we can hear someone else's stories and relate our experience to their experience you know it it gives us that comfort to know that there are others that have walked this path before us and that we can keep going that's it from my STEM guest this week. Oh, I am absolutely gobsmacked by what I've heard today. What a journey my guest has had. And she has emerged so strong and so assertive and so knowledgeable and wise through all the hardships and the triumphs that she's been through. And I can honestly say, as someone who knows her personally, she is a woman that really has it all and she's she's gained those things by pure hard work and passion and self-belief um, and this absolute drive to push through any kind of adversity. I'm utterly inspired and uh, I feel like I'm going to need some time to process everything. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to rate and review the show and even subscribe and catch you next week on Silence.